I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jeremy Stoppelman, co-founder of Yelp, a company that provides user-generated reviews of local businesses through its website and mobile app. Jeremy launched Yelp in 2004 with Russell Simmons, whom he met while working at PayPal, and the company went public in 2012. Jeremy is from Virginia and graduated with a degree in engineering from the University of Illinois in 1999. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'd like to start with your earlier life before we jump into Yelp. Uh, You grew up in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Your mom was an English teacher. Your father was a securities lawyer. That's right. Uh, You enjoyed picking stocks. And at the time, reviewing stocks was um, not an electronic business. It Mm -hmm. was opening up the New York Times and going through these lists. And Mm -hmm. what were one or two stocks that, that you followed? Um, early on, yeah, I was still always into computer technology and technology in general. And so the first couple of stocks that I personally bought were Micron Technology, um, which made memory, memory chips for computers, and applied materials, which made machines for creating uh, silicon wafers. But, uh, you know, I think my interest probably started with baseball cards, if you wanted to go even a little bit earlier to, <laughs> to how did I get interested in stocks, is I loved you know, buying and selling baseball cards and going to uh, you know, uh, conferences or, or you know, get-togethers where people would trade those, those sorts of things. And the gum that you would get in the packages of the The stale cards. gum was never the highlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, every month, you know, I'd talk about paper businesses. I would get like the Beckett's uh, report on prices for for all of your baseball cards, and I'd watch them go up and down, and mm-hmm. and that just translated into stock picking. Once I was old enough to do that, probably around 13, 14 years old. It seems obvious to draw a connection to your father, who was in the securities mm-hmm. business. Sure. Um, but your mother, what influence did English have on on your professional life? She had a love for reading, and she had a a love for writing. She still has a love for writing. And I really enjoyed writing growing up Mm. um, and enjoyed essays. I entered a poetry competition, you know, when I was probably 12, 13 years old. Um, And and that carried all the way through. And I think it's no surprise that the the company that I helped found uh, is partially about writing. It's a community of writers. You've also uh, have a blog uh, where you reviewed uh, nonfiction yes, books. Sure. Uh, uh, although your last post, I think, was in 2010. Yeah, uh, it's gotten a little stale. Right. <laughs> you also were a tinkerer. Can you just provide one or two examples of of that? As a child, I really loved to understand how things worked and uh, and to to get physical with them and get my hands on them and build things. I got very into remote control cars, and not the kind that you just buy preassembled, but the kits that you have to put everything together, and there's a lot of maintenance involved and moving parts and servos and remote controls and and all sorts of little technology gizmos. And so I I love that. I spent probably most of my early teen years playing with remote control cars and building them. When was your first encounter with computers? You know, the story of how I got my first computer was my dad apparently had a client that couldn't pay his his bill, (laughs) uh, but ended up having a bunch of Packard Bell computers sitting around. And so essentially my my dad got barter (laughs) for his legal services, and we ended up with our first Packard Bell computer, um, which I wasn't supposed to touch. Uh, It was hands-off, but that didn't stop me. Uh, And I spent lots of time learning how to use it and program it and play with it, uh, erasing the hard drive and making it non-operable for a while uh, to my mom's chagrin. And, uh, and that really got me started in the journey that you know, ultimately led to my later career. 
you knew from very early on that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. that you wanted to start a company, and you would read these magazines of these people who would start companies, and, and you would say, I want to be that guy. Now, who was that guy? Who are some of those people you aspired to be? Yeah, I... I read a, a lot of technology magazines, like PC Magazine. I would read cover to cover because I wanted to know everything about computers. I also would read, you know, Forbes, which was lying around the house. But then there was also the the PC titans, the Bill Gates of the world, uh, the Michael Dells, and I would read about them and, and their stories and how you know they went, you know, from kind of college age uh, to uh, technology titan almost overnight. So those were some of the people that that I worshipped. You went to the University of Illinois, uh, you majored in engineering, and after college, you got your first job in Silicon Valley at a company called At Home. You were bored there. H how come? And this is a company that, that became uh, at, uh, Excite At Home, right? Yeah, so right? they were the first uh, commercial cable internet provider. And so I got recruited there uh, straight off campus, uh, funny enough, by a uh, now Google executive, <laughs> mm. um, Jeff Huber. You know, when I got exposed to Silicon Valley, like that was just a, a mind-blowing experience. My first trip to interview there was very eye-opening. What were some impressions that you remember? You know? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the thing that stands out the most was driving down the 101, headed to my interview um, from my hotel, which was probably by the airport. Uh, and I remember seeing billboards um, for esoteric technologies. Um, like I remember one that was, you know, buy our FPGA, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, something that hardware designers use to create circuits and try them out. And I was like, this is such a strange place that, that there's enough engineers that people would actually be buying billboards mm. for thousands and thousands of dollars to advertise the people driving down the highway, thinking that enough people would even understand what that thing was. It's like I barely knew what an FPG, FPGA was. Um, and so that made me feel like I had found the right place. And it's an engineer's paradise. In your 20s, where one can feel uh, that they're sort of in this amorphous stew of what to do, you were fortunate to kind of land with, in a directed manner, even though at home was not the place. Yeah. I often you know, run into people or talk to people that you know, haven't figured out or aren't sure what they want to do with their lives. And, uh, and it was strange that I always had, I've always had a sense of direction of kind of where I should go next. I've never quite understood that feeling of being completely lost. Like, I'm kind of a decisive person. And, and so I, I, I generally don't get anxiety when it comes to, to making decisions. You know, I think about it, wrap my head around it, make the decision, and then I'm ready to move on and get the job done. <laughs> what are some other early impressions of Silicon Valley? Uh, once I had decided to, to leave uh, at-home networks, I found my way uh, accidentally just through a, a recruiter that cold called me to x.com, mm -hmm. um, which was one of the precursors to PayPal. And it was right. a company that had been founded by Elon Musk. You know, sure, I had read about Bill Gates being, you know, 19 or so when he started his company or Michael Dell starting out of a dorm room. But I never met any of these folks. So it was sort of mythological creatures. <laughs> um, but when I met Elon, he had already sold his first company for hundreds of millions of dollars and was which, moving on. Which one? Uh, it was uh, a Yellow Pages company, actually, that he sold to Alta Vista, uh, I believe called uh, Zip2. Mm. Um, it was the first Yellow Pages, I guess, on the internet, ironically. 
And so he just had a, a nice success, and he was 28 years old. And so it was my first brush with a young entrepreneur that, that had already kind of made it. And, and that was a shocker. It was like, wow, here's a really young, brilliant person. And, and he's telling me the story of his new company, and he's saying this little company of you know, 20, 30 people is going to take on Visa and MasterCard someday. And he said it with perfect confidence, and he had sort of this twinkle in his eye. And right at that moment, I was like, I just got to sign up and work with Like, I have to be in the presence of this entrepreneur. I want to mm-hmm. see where this is going. This is definitely uh, an interesting place to be. And it was happenstance that brought you there. And they, um, you know, as you said, uh, merged with Peter Thiel and Max Lepshin mm-hmm. and, and the company that became PayPal, uh, where you were for three and a half years and went through the merger with eBay. You know, you mentioned before that you drive things, but it seems like y- things were driving you, too. Uh, you just happened to get uh, into the right places at the right times <laughs> to some to some degree. Looking back on that, I was supremely lucky, um, you know, to have met Elon at that moment. Um, But at the same time, you know, there was decision, like there was some important decisions that had to be made. It's like I had to decide to leave at home network when I did before the whole thing crashed and jobs were more scarce. Um, And I also, you know, was fortunate to recognize this Elon was an interesting person. And I bet, you know, it was a bet that I made and, and ended up there. And I actually, around the, that same time, I had friends. I, one of the other jobs I had uncovered was at this company called Ink to Me, which was kind of a precursor to Google. And they were willing to pay me a lot more money to, to go work there. Um, and so I remember calling up Elon and saying, look, I've got this other offer. It's like $20,000 more. Can you do something? Help me out. And he's like, nope. <laughs> like when I come to XSecCom, you're gonna have to take the take the offer that I gave you, and, and so I did. I took a lot less money uh, to mm-hmm. go to XSecCom, and uh, and it proved to be a, a very fortunate direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of my friends went over to Ink to Me, and then Ink to Me kind of imploded. But fortunately, those employees learned about search, and so therefore they all got jobs at Google. So right. it worked out in the end for everyone. Incidentally, what other jobs did you have growing up? My first job was a, a landscaper. And so I was uh, mulching and digging uh, fence hole posts <laughs> and uh, you know, putting down fertilizer. It was, I thought I got paid well at the time. I think it was $6.25 an hour. Yeah, and it was a beautiful garden. That was probably the best part. I asked partly because, um, you know, the PayPal and Yelp, these are services, mm-hmm. and you're not making actual things. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering if you had experience with actual things mm-hmm. and navigating that dichotomy, because your life is out there now. In the digital world, right. yeah. Um, the interesting thing is that building software actually feels like making things. And you know that might seem weird uh, when you hear that described, but you know that that's one of the things that I love so much about software um, and building internet services is there is this instant gratification of you write a few lines of code and you've produced something like it works. That's a creation. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. But frankly, an iPhone, the software is just as important as the hardware. It's the two working together that really makes a, a the beautiful device that it is. You spent three and a half years at PayPal, uh, and you decided to go to Harvard Business School. And mm-hmm. incidentally, you asked Elon Musk to write a recommendation for you. Mm-hmm. What was what was the content of that recommendation? 
I have no idea what he wrote, um, but I did get in, so I take it that he probably didn't say terrible things. But there were a couple. I didn't get into all the schools I applied. Harvard was actually the only one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I read somewhere where he wrote he should not go here because I he just that. felt like, why do you need school when you have you know been a senior manager at PayPal, etc. There is that thread that goes through a number of these senior. Uh, people formerly of PayPal, uh, Elon, <laughs> as well as Peter Thiel, I think is particularly well known for that. Max Levchin has you know, prided himself historically on getting people, including myself, to drop out uh, of academic programs. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeremy Stoppelman, co-founder of Yelp. We'll hear more from Jeremy coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jeremy Stoppelman, co-founder of Yelp, a company that provides user-generated reviews of local businesses through its website and mobile app. Jeremy launched Yelp in 2004 with Russell Simmons, whom he met while working at PayPal, and the company went public in 2012. You spent three and a half years at PayPal, uh, and you decided to go to Harvard Business School. And mm-hmm. and while you did not intend to drop out of Harvard, uh, you did. Uh, the summer between your first and second year, you worked for Max's incubator, mm-hmm. where you, the germ of Yelp kind of emerged. Uh, he kind of tasked you with building the Yellow Pages for the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, basically... Mm-hmm. I came there that summer really just to help out. And then he just kind of threw me into the fire and said, why don't you start brainstorming and see if you can come up with another idea that we could fund. And one of the uh, the threads that was floating in the incubator, sort of the things that was being talked about was Craigslist is killing the newspaper business. Like it's carved out the most profitable chunk, the classifieds. There's another old media business, the Yellow Pages, and it really hasn't been completely transformed by the internet. There's got to be something better that you could do that's internet native. And, uh, you know, in that uh, summer, I actually, you know, got the flu and was looking around for a doctor and was Googling, and there was, like, really no information other than that, most bare-bones information. And, And there was, like, insurance websites saying, oh, we accept your insurance, but nothing that I felt like was useful, which is I want to go to a guy who... Or, or a woman who has like an incredible bedside manner that other people think is great, and that that information wasn't available, and so that formulated the initial seed of like this is an important unsolved problem. Like I should be able to, I can go on Amazon right now and find the best you know Wi-Fi router, but I can't go on and find a general practitioner that people like. What? Why does that? Why is that the case? And that's sort of like that the founding myth, you know, that 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 I've heard about you mm-hmm. that you were sick and you needed a doctor. Was there any other things percolating? I mean, uh, that doctor example is is true. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> it did happen, mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of ignited my passion for the problem. Uh, then the question beca- became, well, how do you know what what is the thing that is better? You know, what is the thing that could exist on the internet? that would be a better way to find local businesses. And that led us to start talking about word of mouth. Everybody has all this great information in their heads. The question then became, well, how do you get this word of mouth out of people's heads and onto the internet? 
you like to call it word of mouth amplified. Mm-hmm. And you came up with an email of questions uh, regarding local businesses. Yet that was a false start, start because people weren't very responsive to that. But accidentally, you put on the bottom of the page, write a review. And it was kind of open ended. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I truly did not believe that people wanted to write reviews for fun uh, about dry cleaners or all these you know random esoteric businesses that, that we all patronize from time to time. Um, and so I thought the only way that we would capture this word of mouth is if we drew it out of people. Um, and so literally it came down to the wire. We were about to launch our first version of the site, this Ask Your Friends for Recommendations site. And my co-founder, Russ... You know, I remember him peeking over the monitor, his monitor, you know, this giant monitor. He peeks over the monitor. He's like, well, shouldn't there be a way for users to just write a review if they feel so compelled? I, I was trying to be open-minded. You know, again, I'm very decisive and I have my, my strong views and, and I'm kind of thick-headed. And so I'm thinking, well, nobody's going to use that. But I wanted to humor Russ, <laughs> frankly. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, just put it in where, you know, somewhere. And so he buried it. And it was literally a couple pages deep in the site. It was hard to find. And so we launched, and, and you know, people really didn't take to the asking friends for recommendations uh, idea. But when users would occasionally find this feature where they could just write reviews, that was, you know, that was the thing that worked. Like people would write five or ten or fifteen reviews just in one sitting. Mm. And so I, you know, I'm I'm looking at the data, watching how people are are using the site. I'm I'm querying the database, trying to understand like, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Like we've created this thing and it doesn't seem to be working, but is there any evidence that anything is working? And that was the one thing that stood out is like, why are people writing five reviews, ten yet, reviews? Yet you you yourself are a writer. You enjoyed writing when you were younger. It didn't uh, dawn on me until that moment that maybe yes, there there was something to this review writing thing. Right. <laughs> now initially, uh, because you had that false start. And and you weren't getting traction. Um, when you tried to raise capital, you had lackluster results from the VC community, which was a blessing in disguise uh, because it forced you to stay local in San Francisco and focus your efforts there. Whereas if you had raised more capital, you might have you know, tried to uh, launch nationally. How accidental really was that? Um, I mean, there were a few things going on there. So Max, you know, was uh, our first investor. He gave us a million dollars in financing. And soon after, like right as we got the site basically uh, to launch, Max was pushing us to go try and raise additional venture capital. And and so we went out, we talked to a number of people, and they all wanted to see traction. And, And at that time, in 2004... People were not handing out money. <laughs> and so we got the door kind of slammed shut uh, pretty quickly uh, a number of times. I probably pitched you know, 10 or 15 different firms, and, and no one was really interested. There were a few other, you know, other things going on. There were two competitors around the same time, both of which actually did have venture capital. Um, so they had more money. And so this race began to kind of show who was going to be the national review side, who was going to be the biggest first. And, and we didn't have the, the money that they did. So that was definitely a factor. But then also we looked at who had been successful in local before Yelp. Um, and the companies that stood out was Craigslist, which had really, you know, maybe not necessarily on purpose, but had pursued a market by market strategy. They became successful in San Francisco, and then they became successful in New York, and it spread kind of city by city. If you went deep in mm-hmm. one market, mm-hmm. uh, we felt like that would help build a brand, it would help build credibility, and it would provide the platform for you to then leap to the the next few markets, which is what we did. What were some other kind of key uh, pivot moments or factors that kind of helped to escalate the trajectory Mm -hmm. in the early days? 
in the very early days, uh, you know, discovering the power of, uh, of Google uh, for distribution. That was probably one of the first big key insights beyond just the, hey, people actually do want to write reviews. That, that was number one. <laughs> the other thing we realized is, hey, people are now writing and creating this content. You need to open it up to search engines. That was a relatively new idea. 2004 was still the early days of search engine optimization, this idea that if you put content out there, people will actually find it. As somebody who wants to find a restaurant near me, uh, I type in the restaurant and you come up. I have noticed that your search engine optimization is pretty badass. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yeah, it, you know we we do generally get get ranked well ultimately. And your engineers helping to make sure that that happens. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of basics to me to. Uh, coming up in Google. And a big part of that is, frankly, just having content that consumers, that users are, who are searching Google actually want. And, and that's one of the, I think, true miracles of Yelp is that people that got into the site, people that started writing reviews, basically became part of a community. You're then involved in uh, an activity where you know all of these people that are you're meeting also are review writers. And so what does that lead to? Well, maybe you started with a couple of restaurants. And then suddenly you feel like, you know what, I have to review everything in my life, which led to all sorts of local businesses being reviewed that had never been reviewed before. So who is going to review that dry cleaner in that little neighborhood? Right. Nobody and until you know, this community formed. You've mentioned that a little over 20% of your reviews are filtered out because you have this algorithm uh, called the review filter, which kind of is able to smell a fraudulent review. We have uh, what we call the recommendation engine, and uh, it recommends about 75% of content, and it doesn't recommend uh, about 25% mm -hmm. of content. And you know what we're going for there is obviously, yeah, there's the, the obviously fake and shill reviews. There's the malicious reviews of a business owner trying to you know, get their competitors and so forth. So we want to provide strong protections to make sure that that is really very difficult, if not impossible, um, to do. You as a business owner shouldn't have to worry about, how do I boost my reputation on Yelp? You simply focus on your consumers. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeremy Stoppelman, co-founder of Yelp, an online business directory that provides customer reviews of local businesses internationally. I want to go back to uh, the earlier days. You know, you mentioned Google earlier, and they've been a frenemy uh, <laughs> to you. Um, they offered to buy you in 2010 uh, for $500 million. Moving it's on. in the ballpark, uh, and, as reported. <laughs> right, right. A and Yahoo uh, offered to buy you as well. You ultimately uh, said no. Or... Yeah, I mean, the way I thought about those opportunities at that time period was, well, maybe this helps us become international and become a worldwide brand faster. Um, but very quickly, that initial conversation turned into a process, which turned into a little bit of a bidding uh, war. And then I felt like the outcome wasn't necessarily going to be the best for Yelp in the long term, uh, that it was we were going to get the most money possible at that moment. Um, but fundamentally, that's not what I was most focused on. And ultimately, we were able to line up independent financing. Right. And the company was strong. And so it just felt like, let's just step on the gas and go for it. During this time, Steve Jobs enters the picture. Can you ex describe your first encounter with Steve? 
as soon as the iPhone was born and we had an app, he loved it. Um, and he was very vocal about how you didn't need to search anymore. You could just turn to Yelp uh, as somewhat loosely veiled dig at Google uh, and how Yelp was superior to Google uh, you know, that, for local search. So, so that's where the love affair, I guess, began. Given <laughs> uh, his, his aversion or his tempestuous relationship with the Google guys. Yes. I, I think it's safe to say that Steve Jobs was not happy uh, at that point with Google. Um, they had started to compete directly with Android. And so around this time, news broke that, you know, we were potentially in, uh, in M&A talks with Google. I was in a meeting um, actually talking about independent financing already. Uh, so we were already going in the direction of uh, just financing the company and not getting bought. But he didn't know that. And, uh, and so I got, you know, passed a message uh, from my assistant saying, you know, Steve Jobs is on the line. And so I immediately was nervous. Almost, I think I was shaking a little bit. I'm like, what? And so I ran out of the meeting and uh, get, get the phone call transferred to my, my cell phone. And, and of course, Steve Jobs was not on the line. Steve Jobs' assistant was on the line waiting. <laughs> and then she said, one moment, please. And then five minutes later, uh, Steve Jobs appeared on the phone. And, uh, and we did have a, a very nice conversation where you know, he proceeded to tell me that, that he was a Yelp fan. And he thought you know, we were building a great company and, and we had a great product. And he didn't want to see that uh, go to a, another company, in particular Google. For me, I, I also got the you know chance to be a total fanboy and tell him how much I, I loved Apple products at the time. Because he was a titan to you, going back to yeah, the early absolutely. days of Jeremy Stoppelman, you yeah, know, learning about hero. Gates, and you your your heart was a flutter. Yeah, you know, here you are, you 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 have one success after another, and and here you're on the phone with Steve Jobs calling you in the middle of a meeting, um, and we tend to normalize happiness. Mm-hmm. Like once you achieve a certain state, you're like like, okay, I'm kind of numb to this. What next? Right. And, and you've gotten uh, to become those people that you looked up to when you were 10, 11, 12, 13. Do you feel like normalization has happened even in your private moments? You're thinking, okay, wh- where to? Because I mean, it's happened at an accelerated pace. Yeah. I mean, I think it's human nature. Uh, you know, that's what keeps us striving is that, you know, you have these weird phone calls or meetings or, you know, you, you have an IPO and, and you just think all, like all these things that you thought would never happen, mm-hmm. happen. But, you know, your brain plays tricks on you and you're like, okay, now what do I do? But I, I really have a tough time stopping and reflecting. Like I don't do that. People often ask me, do you stop and smell the roses or whatever? And I'm like, no. I want to talk a little bit more about Google for a moment. You know, they they have tried aggressively to get into the local market, um, following your heels with Google Local, Google Maps, the GAT, et cetera. Are they subjects of the Lucifer effect? The Lucifer effect. I'm trying to remember what I wrote on that. Well, this was your last blog in 2010. Basically, uh, it's a book about... That's about the Stanford prison experiment? That's right. And it's basically about, uh, you could tell me better, how good people become evil. (laughs) Um, Things stay up there, Jeremy. uh, Yeah, no, it's a a very interesting question. I've never been asked that. Um, It's all coming back to me now. When I read that book, what became clear to me... As a manager, as a leader, the systems that you put in place have downstream effects. If you don't put in the right controls, if you're not sort of trusting but verifying, and then bad things happen, it is your fault. That is why we need to hold leaders accountable. 
if you talk to people that work at Google, they all believe a sort of whitewashed version of themselves where they're always the heroes and everybody else, you know, to the extent they're against what Google's interested in is wrong. Um, Yet they you know, try to stifle your own search engine yeah, optimization. I mean, you look at some of their statements back in, say, 2004, 2005 about what did they believe they were doing? They thought they were a turnstile. They thought they were sending users to the best content on the web. They thought that you know sites like Yahoo or AOL that tried to hold users in and force them to go to house properties that weren't as good as the rest of the web, they thought that was wrong. And then now they've come to believe that that is so right because, well, of course, there's advertising dollars. Um, and, and so that, you know, that is a function of, of it starts at the top with how management has changed their thinking. I want to talk about the IPO in 2012 because it was an arrival moment. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just describe uh, that with your mom next to you? What's your mm-hmm. mom's name, by the way? Lynn. Lynn. Mrs. Stoppelman, she'd probably prefer. <laughs> <laughs> She's old-fashioned like that. <laughs> because this was the intersection of, oh, you've been picking stocks, and here you are. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, she was very happy uh, that day. Like that was, it was, it was great uh, to see her that happy. Um, and, and I was, I was definitely blown away. It was just over, for me. It was sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Um, I just come off of two weeks of the road show where you're out, kind of pitching Yelp, and and it was grueling. Um, you know, your city every night you're sleeping in a different bed in a different city. Um, and you're having you know a dozen meetings or several meetings at least a day, sort of saying the same things over and over. And then it culminates in this one day of the IPO. To be up there on the platform ringing the bell, I've got my brother on one side, my mom on the other, surrounded by some of our early employees and executives. And it, it was quite, it was a total rush. Did you think about your father in that moment who, who died in 1998? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely on my mind because, you know, he was a securities lawyer. And, uh, yeah. Are there just impressions from this whole journey that you have that you just haven't been asked that you just think about as you're going to sleep at night? or? Uh... I don't know. I mean, I think there's, like, the, the psychological journey um, of starting a company, like how almost manic depressive, you know, you, you know, you're up one minute and you think you're changing, you're going to change the world and this is going to have a big impact. And then you're totally down next minute. And you think you're, you've got this you know, little team of 10 people and you're running them off a cliff and wasting their time and wasting your friend's money. Yeah, you seem some, like someone who is kind of unflappable. You, you, you seem to have a, um, no, a, just a, an even keel. Yeah, sometimes just... people, it's interesting. Sometimes people say that, but I think the people that know me like probably say I'm I'm moody. <laughs> the only reason why I know that I I wasn't per- I wasn't particularly aware of that um, until we we had a little uh, office sort of joke awards uh, back in I think 2007. You know I thought I was going to win the award for messiest desk, and the award that I won was most moody. <laughs> and I, I was surprised. I'm like, okay, let me think about that. I guess I could see it. Um, you know I the I think part of that is I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Like I'm not, I don't have necessarily a poker face. And so people could see my emotions go up and down. And like maybe now that the company's more mature, you know, things are more stable. And so therefore I come off as more stable. But when it was earlier, I was probably more up and down. Do you exercise to help uh, mitigate that moodiness? Running is is very therapeutic. Um, And then also like I'll either run with my dog or I'll just take him on a long dog walk and clear my head. What kind of dog do you have? He's a Vishla. 
And, and actually, that ties into the, the psychological story a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the very beginning, you know, I was very stressed. And my mom was worried. She actually sent me a, like an electronic piano because I played mm-hmm. piano as a kid. So she thought I would you know, meditate essentially by playing piano. But it, that didn't stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had always wanted to get a dog. And, and so I thought, you know, what, if I'm going to do this to myself... I'm just also, I'm going to get a dog. We have this little crappy office, and Max has a little puppy that pees all over the place. And so I can have a puppy, too, that can pee all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so I got Darwin, and, you know, he was my savior. He was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And we've really grown up together, and, mm-hmm. and he's, he's my buddy. Well, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. My guest has been Jeremy Stoppelman, co-founder of Yelp. Coming up, we'll meet John Oranger, founder of Shutterstock. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch. 